0: As uh, as Mike mentioned, uh, I came all the way from the youth room to 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 be here tonight, and uh, I'm I'm blessed. I'm honored to be able to do that, and uh, thankful that uh, Mike shares this this new pulpit with with me. It's really cool. I like it. Uh, so t- tonight we're going to be studying from Acts chapter seven, and uh, the title of my message is campaign. So go ahead and uh, open your Bibles, and then we'll. Go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless his study. Uh, Father God, I thank you. Thank you that uh, we get to be here, that we get to uh, hang out with church family, that we get to open up your word, that we get to study it, that we get to learn from it. Thank you, Lord, for, for allowing us to, to come before you in worship, Lord. Lord, be honored, be glorified today. Lord, thank you for um, the way that you have uh, shown us truth through your word the way that you have uh, um, encouraged us through uh, one another, Lord, as we uh, gather together uh, each and every Thursday and Sunday, Lord, to uh, just be here for you, Lord. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's good to see the youth in here, too. Guys, you're, you're still going to have homework, so don't think you got off. I, I like to assign them homework after our... our uh, Studies so that uh, they, they they do something at home and then they share. Uh, they won't get to share, and I'll, I'll miss that discussion, guys. So um, you know, if you have questions later, you know, you can ask next time we we meet. Uh, but I don't think we're gonna have a lot of group discussion uh, tonight. Uh, so the title is campaign, and uh, I, I like to make uh, each each lesson each uh, message that I do. Uh, re- Kind of related to a, a war theme, and me lacking a military background is kind of difficult sometimes. Uh, and behind the scenes, what I do, I do internet searches, and, and that's that's how I, I come up with some of these things. And uh, so, as I was doing my internet search, uh, I came to I came upon this word, and uh, from the fountain of knowledge known as Wikipedia, this is what it says as a definition for campaign. Uh, a military campaign is a large-scale, long-duration, significant military strategy plan, it's already a lot, uh, incorporating a series of interrelated military operations or battles forming a distinct part of a larger conflict, often called a war. The term derives from the plane of Campania, a place of annual wartime operations by the armies of the Roman Republic. So as I considered this definition and all the stuff in that definition, it, it got me to thinking and it reminded me of the way that God, his, his actions in, in history, the things that he does, um, he's got a big plan, a big strategic plan. And it's large scale, right? It's the whole world involved, right? And it's also long duration as, as we see, as we study. Um, God is on a different time than, than we are, right? and his time is not uh, according to our time, and we're going to see that as we study this passage. Um, so for, for background, we, we come to uh, Acts chapter 7, and this is in the middle of Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin, and Stephen, as you may know, is, became the first Christian martyr, and what happened with Stephen, he was a man full of faith, full of uh, grace, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit, and people didn't like that. And he got in trouble with some of the unbelieving Jews in the area, and they opposed him. And they said, you can't be talking about Jesus. that's, That's not allowed. And they started arguments with him, but their arguments could not match up to the wisdom that Stephen spoke with that came directly from God and the Holy Spirit living inside of him. So what did they do? Instead of backing off and saying, oh, you know what, you, you're right, we, we, we were wrong. No, they, they doubled down. And what they did was they, they brought some men to, to seize Stephen and bring him before the religious authorities. And they brought some guys to bring up some false accusations against Stephen. So here's Stephen standing before the religious authorities, all these accusations flying at him. And he's just there bold, unflinching. In, in the face of all of that. And they accuse him of all sorts of crazy things, but I think the most notable thing that they accuse him of is blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, and then the Sanhedrin, to open up this, this chapter, asked Stephen, the high priest said, are these things true? And Stephen, instead of defending himself and saying, no, that's not true, I didn't say anything, I did not blaspheme, no, he did not do that. What he did was he launches into this sermon that takes the majority of chapter 7. And this sermon is a, a history lesson, and it's a Bible lesson. And I think it's, it's funny that he's telling these religious leaders about Abraham, about Joseph, about Moses. They already know this stuff. They must be, as they're listening to him, they must be thinking, yeah, yeah, we know, yeah. What else you got? But, and, and even reading through this, it, it's, it's something that we know if we read through the Bible, if we even attended children's ministry. These are the Bible stories that we grew up learning. But Stephen has a different perspective on all of this. These Bible stories are not isolated, um, standalone narratives. It's not just Noah's Ark and that's it, Adam and Eve and that's it, but it's all interconnected, all interrelated. And all of it is through the perspective of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, what do all of these things mean? How has God worked up to this point and how we continue to work in light of the cross? So Stephen starts off in chapter 7 talking about Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish race. But more importantly, he's the father of faith. He goes on to tell about how Abraham was given this tremendous promise from God. That he would be the father of a great nation. That look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. Because that's what your descendants are going to number. And at that point, Abraham had zero descendants. But he trusted in God. And he did what God said. God said, pack up and move. He, pack up, he packed up and went. And that's amazing faith. And that's an example for us. And later God would tell him this in kind of giving him some more details on this promise, he says, your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land and they will enslave and oppress them for 400 years. And I will judge the nation and they will serve as slaves. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. So if I'm Abraham, I'm like, are you serious? 400 years? I'm never going to see that. He, he could have very easily said, "Well, count me out God this, this is this is not even going to affect me. This is like way later in the future." But Abraham didn't do that. If you read on, it says that Abraham just kept going on obeying he had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had twelve sons after him. And then we come to Joseph and Joseph is an awesome example for us in the Bible of patience and endurance. And you guys know the story. Joseph is, is there minding his own business when his brothers decide, hey, let's sell him. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up as a slave. He ends up as a prisoner. And through a course of events, he ends up being second in command, second in charge of the entire land of Egypt. That's amazing. And as we see Joseph, we see God's plan just little by little, right? Little pieces of it. And that's, that's Stephen's uh, whole point. It's like this is, whole, this is all God's plan, and we need to see all the little pieces and how they fit together and how they come to this strategic, large-scale, long-duration plan that has been initiated since the Garden of Eden, really. And the, the warfare, the spiritual warfare, the battle, rages on to the present day. So we're going to see all of that, God's strategic plan. We're going to see how the enemy also has a plan of its own, and it acts aggressively in response to, to God's plan. And we're also going to see how the, the plans of God is uh, large scale, like I said before, and long duration. So um, let's go ahead and jump into the, the main text, which is uh, Acts 7, 17 through 22 It says as the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt he dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight he was cared for in his father's home for three months. And when he, was, when he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and his actions. So as we, um, as we look at these verses again, I want to focus uh, in this first part on the first two verses, 17 and 18, and we're going to see several things. We're going to see the time factor that uh, Stephen speaks about, that the, the time was approaching to fulfill the promise. We're going to see how God caused his people in Egypt to flourish and to multiply. And we're going to see how God arranged everything so that there was this particular guy in Egypt that became their ruler. And even, even before that, how God made it so that his people were in Egypt when this ruler came into power. And what we're going to also uh, see, we're going to answer this question, how have you seen God's strategic plan at work in your own life? So going back over the first two verses in this section, uh, in this passage, it says, as the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. So what I would like to look at is that first phrase, as the time was approaching. So like I said before, God's timing on things not necessarily the way that we would like things done in our microwave generation, right? We want things done now. We want to push that one minute button on the microwave and it'd be ready for us. We want things done yesterday, okay? But that's not how God works. He doesn't work according to what we want and when we want it, okay? And uh, I think it's really cool how it, throughout the Bible, it, it mentions these, these uh, instances where God is working according to his own schedule and his own time, and that has nothing to do with what we want. One of the things that it mentions is the coming of Jesus, That was according to God's timing. In Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of time was come, and by the way, this is the King James Version, uh, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And I use the King James because of that phrase, the fullness of time. And I think that phrase is just so powerful because uh, it's just God... Choosing the right moment when everything was just right. All the situations and the factors and all the characters were in play. And God says, now is the time. So we see that Jesus comes at just the right time, in the fullness of time. Okay? And the Jews were expecting a Messiah for, for many, many years. Right, Eve, after she had Cain, thought this was the guy that was going to crush the head of the serpent. If you remember in Genesis 4, it says that, now I have brought forth a man with the Lord's help. So in her mind, this this was the guy. But then thousands of years and hundreds of pages in your Bible later, this is when Jesus comes, in the fullness of time, when God says it's going to happen. We also know that in the fullness of time, Jesus did his ministry. He waited 30 years or so to begin his ministry. And before that, nothing much is mentioned of Jesus' life besides his birth and that one episode where he gets lost by his parents and he's found in the temple. So we don't have much there until that specific time. And throughout his ministry, people are encouraging him to you know, make yourself known. Tell people who you are. It's not my time yet. And even when he encounters opposition and they're ready to kill him for the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying, and Jesus doesn't let that happen. It's not time yet. Also, uh, we see that the fullness of time applies to the end, when Jesus is going to come back, right? How many of us are, hoping and wishing. And how many of us have, have said, can it be now, God? You see all the stuff on the news, see things going south in different ways. God, can Jesus come now? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 say this, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together all things, I'm sorry, all, might gather in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him. So again, the fullness of time. Jesus will come at the right time. We don't know when that time is, but he will come when he's supposed to, at the right time. Okay? And there's this interesting relationship between God and time. God created time. It says in, in the first sentence in the Bible, Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in, in addition to creating time, uh, I'm sorry, in, in addition to creating space and matter, he's also created time. The same way that God knows everything about his creation, he knows the stars by name, and not because he went around and asked each star what their name was, because he named it. He named each star. He knows each one of us. Psalm 139 tells us how he knit together each one of us in our mother's wombs. He knows everything about us. And I believe we can also apply that to time itself. That God is omniscient, that he knows everything about time and what will happen in time because he created it. He created time and he knows all things That will happen. So, when we say that God is omniscient and He knows everything and that He knows what will happen in the future, it's not as if God is like kind of looking into the future. It's not as if He is making predictions or guesses. It's because He knows because He has declared it. The Bible says He declares the end from the beginning. So, another thing that we know about God and time is that He exists. Since he created it, he exists outside of time. He is transcendent. He is above time, and he is outside of time, and he created it, and he controls it. And for us, that's kind of a weird concept because we are finite beings, and we are bound by time, and we don't understand how anything can exist outside of time. We look at 2 Peter chapter 2, And we see this. Dear friends, do not overlook this one fact. With the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So, just a caution here. This is not a mathematical formula. It doesn't say that one day equals one thousand years. It doesn't say that. And, And I think a lot of Uh, mistakes have been made in trying to predict when Jesus is coming back or trying to uh, predict prophecies. It's not a method for doing that. What it says, it's like a thousand years. It's a comparison. It's trying to show us and explain to us that with God, time works differently because he stands outside of it. So when we are impatient And things aren't happening when we want. We have to remember this, that the Lord does not delay his promise. There's no such thing as delay. I'm sure you've heard uh, a Christian friend of yours say that God is never early and he's never late, but he's always on time. And that's true. That is true. Um, I'm going to quote Spurgeon because I think he explains it very well and probably much better than I did. Uh, In opening up this general principle, we've remarked that all time is equally present with God. We know that an event is to transpire today, it appears very near to us. But when we know that it will not occur until a thousand years have elapsed, we think nothing of it. We feel that we shall have gone to our graves long before that era, and therefore the event does not strike us as having any connection with ourselves. Now, it is not so with God. All things are equally near and present to his view. The distance of a thousand years before the occurrence of an event is no more to him than it would be the interval of a day. With God, indeed, there is neither past, present, nor future. He takes for his name the I Am. So as we look at the uh, verses in Acts again, we're going to see another thing that comes up where the second phrase in, in uh, verse 17 says, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. And when, when you hear that, you, think, you might think of uh, God telling his creation, his, his uh, uh, creation of Adam and Eve, and he, he stood before them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So in this situation, the people in Egypt got that part down. They were being fruitful. They were multiplying just as God wanted, but they were not ruling, right? They were in Egypt. They were in a land of somebody else's rule. So we see that, but we also notice that uh, Jesus gave a similar command to us, right, to his disciples, Okay. This was the creation mandate when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Jesus gave a similar command called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, it says this, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. So Jesus is telling us, as Christians, as his church, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, Jesus has many parables that he used to, to teach the people about the kingdom of God. Some, some commentators, they, they call them the, the kingdom parables. Okay? And there's two in particular that, that are relevant here. Matthew 13 talks about the mustard seed. And what does Jesus say about the mustard seed? It's a small, tiny little thing, put it in the ground and grows into this big, giant tree, right? Such that birds can, can build their nests in there, right? And it doesn't happen from one day to the next, right? You don't put a seed in the ground and water it, and you got a tree. It's a gradual process. Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God is that way. It starts off small, gradually it's going to get big. Also, uh, a similar parable is is the leaven in the dough. Right? A woman put a measure of leaven in in the dough and it spread throughout the entire thing just the same way as the kingdom of God, right? It's going to spread because that's what Jesus told us to do. He didn't say to to hang out until he came back and just wait and do nothing. He said go, go now, make disciples. I also thought of of the prophecy in Daniel. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream where he saw this giant statue made of different types of materials. Um, and, and well, I'll, I'll just read it so, so we can get a picture of what's going on. Uh, he has this, this dream and, and asks uh, for an interpretation. Here's Daniel to interpret it. Uh, then the iron and the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors the wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth in the in the days of those kings the god of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and his and this kingdom will not be left to another people it will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end but will itself endure forever you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. So we see from from Scripture that the kingdom of God is going to fill the entire earth, and God is going to use us. He is using us at this moment to build his kingdom. And like I said before, Jesus didn't give this command No reason. He expected us to go and do it and it would be successful. He didn't tell us to just sit and wait. He told us to go and do. And I think there's a a misconception with some Christians that, you know, they they have that view that we shouldn't have to do anything. We're just, you know, let, let the world get bad and then Jesus will come. No, that's not it. What if I told you that the kingdom of God is at hand? That it's near. Jesus said it himself in Mark chapter one. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time, again, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So the next thing in these two verses that I want to point out is um, that, that last part where the where it says, until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. And we'll talk about this uh, ruler, this, this king of Egypt, this Pharaoh, in, in just a little bit. But uh, what I want to focus on is the fact that they are in Egypt at this point. God arranged things with Joseph and his brothers and, um, and, and Pharaoh and the dreams. You know the story. He arranged everything so that his people would be in Egypt. You may wonder, why? Why did God do that? I mean... The promised land's over here. I don't know if I'm doing my directions, right? But the promised land's over here. Egypt's over here. Why, why did God bring them over there? And as, as I thought about that, uh, I, I came up with a few different ways or, or reasons that God might have done this. He did this as a reminder to the Israelites. And I think that's also a reminder to us. In Numbers chapter 15, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So frequently through the Bible, the god's people are reminded of the fact that god brought them out of egypt right and it wasn't just any old way it was like powerful it was miraculous this this parting the sea sending the plagues sending the cloud to lead them this was this was crazy stuff and this is a powerful god that that the people need to be reminded of, of the, the things that he did. And this is, a, this is what we need to be reminded of. The same God that we read about in Scripture who brought his people out of Egypt through miraculous signs. The same God that we serve, that we worship, that we pray to, that we uh, uh, study his word. The same God. So that's one reason I think that God had them in Egypt, to, to remind them, hey, this is what I did for you. Another reason I think it was a warning to the nations around them. If you remember, uh, in in Numbers, we have this guy named Balaam, and he was instructed by the king to curse Israel because he saw that they were coming. And he had heard of what their God had done for them. It says in Numbers 22, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the land and are living right across from me. So he's worried about that because he heard. he heard what God had done uh, for his people in and, and leading them out of Egypt. And then we come to Joshua and he sends spies into Jericho and they, they come upon a woman named Rahab. And this is what Rahab tells the spies. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings who completely de- who you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So the the nations around, and I think that that is also true for us when people find out about our God then we can tell them about our God and we can point to all of these wonderful amazing things that God has done and the last thing uh, I think that God sending his people to Egypt and bringing them out is is a way of God painting a picture for us I think it's symbolic of God's deliverance of his people from sin through Jesus Christ Um. I got this quote from a a website called uh, gotquestions.org, and uh, this is what it says in explanation of that. Egypt has a tremendous symbolic significance in the Bible. Israel's redemption from Egypt is a picture of our deliverance from sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ. While initially seen as a place of refuge in famine or threat, Egypt becomes a place of oppression and slavery. For New Testament believers, Egypt represents our old life of slavery to sin. All people by nature, slaves of sin, and Satan is a much harsher taskmaster than the Egyptian overseers. The natural man labors powerlessly under the weight of sin. God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the lamb on the first Passover. And he redeems us from sin by the blood of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Just as God called his people the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, he calls us, his children, to come out and be separate and live holy lives in his kingdom. So, I asked that question from earlier. How have you seen God's strategic plan at work in your life? You probably have, right? What brought you here to this point in this building at 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 this time, right? And even more so, even more importantly, um, I think we can also point to God's strategic plan in sending Jesus into our lives. There was a person that told you there was something that happened that brought you to Jesus. And then that plan continues as Jesus delivers you from your sins and takes you out of that symbolic Egypt, which represents our old lives. And God is currently using us through Jesus to build his kingdom. As he says, go now and make disciples. So Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So God's got a strategic plan and he's making it work out according to the way that he works wants it to work out. So next we turn to verse 19. And in verse 19, we're going to focus in on this ruler in Egypt who does some bad things to the people of God. We talk about deceitful dealings, oppression, the murder of the innocents. And we want to ask, if we want to put it in terms of what's going on today. What acts of aggression do you notice in our world Today, I bet you see a lot of them. So let's look at verse 19. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they weren't, wouldn't survive. In uh, Exodus, this is um, where we first read about this, and here are the details from uh, the book of Exodus. Um, "'Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. "'Otherwise they will multiply further. "'And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, "'fight against us, and leave the country. "'So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites "'to oppress them with forced labor. "'They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. "'But the more they oppressed them, "'the more they multiplied and spread. "'So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. "'They worked the Israelites ruthlessly "'and made their lives bitter.' With difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on, on them. So that's from Exodus 1. So, as we see th- this verse, we, um, the first thing mentioned is the, the deceitful dealings. And if we think about it in terms of, of our situation today, um, deceitful dealings, being lied to, being manipulated to do certain things or act in certain ways, does that sound familiar? Right? We have politicians that will stand up and, and, and they will tell you lies. This, uh, the, this season of the year where we got elections coming up and uh, you see all those ads on, on the TV um, and, and they're, they're scary, right? They put the, the, their uh, political opponent right, with, with fire around them and their eyes are red and it's, it's scary, right? And, and they're trying to manipulate us, right? And they're not the only ones. We have media doing the same thing. We have companies, big companies, doing that. We have false teachers in the church lying to us, dealing deceitfully for their own gain. They want us to do what they want. They want us to follow them rather than follow God. So this is why we need to have discernment. Discernment is one of the greatest needs of this day. Spurgeon said, Discernment is not the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. So if you have discernment, I mean, obviously, um, the devil doesn't come with you know, the, the, the red makeup and the horns and the pointy tail, right? Because that would be obvious, right? But it, it's sneaky, it's deceitful, the way that the enemy comes up to us. And, and how do we get discernment? What do we do? Is discernment just some magical gift that pops into uh, the inside of us, in our hearts, in our minds, whatever? No. We can train our discernment. We can develop that discernment by reading our Bibles. That's first and foremost. By listening to sound teaching. And as we do that, the more and more we do that, we will be able to develop to hone in those skills of discernment so that we can not be lied to, so that when they're trying to deal deceitfully with us, we won't believe them because we believe the Word of God. The next thing it mentions is oppression. And I'm not talking about, in our day, the oppression that people think that they have, right? You talk about these uh, woke people that um, just because you um, mentioned something about skin color, or whatever, they, they get upset about that. They're called microaggressions. And that's not oppression. That is not oppression. I mean, you see here what oppression is, right? Slave labor, your rights taken away. That's what they did to the Israelites. And that's something that these these people that that, that I mentioned earlier are trying to do to us. They, they want our whites, rights taken away. They want us to just fall in line and do what they say to do. They essentially want us to be their slaves. And then finally, we see how they murdered innocents, right? And this isn't the first time, or this won't be the last time that we see this in the Bible, of the murder of innocent baby boys. If you remember the story in Exodus, Pharaoh instructs the the midwives to take the baby boys and throw them in the river and to kill them in that way. Then years later, at the birth of Jesus, Herod does a similar thing. He, he instructs uh, the massacre of baby boys two years and under. You read about it in Matthew chapter 2. And that's what the enemies of God, that's one of their strategies, that's one of their attacks, is that they go for the innocents, the babies. right? And that's what we see the, this, these days right you know thank god for uh the overturning of Roe v Wade but then what do we see we see these people come out and protest we see uh the the uh advocates of abortion come out even stronger and then they will um vilify anybody who says yeah killing babies is wrong you shouldn't do that that should be illegal and they they manipulate things and try to Say, we're the bad guys for having that opinion that you shouldn't kill babies. And if babies make it out of the womb, the attack isn't over because guess what they're doing? They're, they are exposing children, younger and younger, to, to wickedness of all kinds. Right? We have uh, libraries across the country that will invite men dressed up like ladies to read stories to kids, and that's normal and that's cool according to them. And you should, and you should be in support of that according to them. And then we have this whole issue of of gender confusion where these people are are purposely confusing our children and and telling them that if you think you're a girl, then you're a girl, whether your anatomy matches those thoughts. If you like pink, oh, and you're a boy, maybe you aren't a boy. They'll tell you things, and they're confusing people. And these attacks, they're awful, they're awful. And that's an example of the acts of aggression that we see in our day. So we see that the enemy has a plan of its own, right? And our enemy has soldiers in the battle. I mentioned Matthew 13 and all the parables. Another parable is of the wheat and the weeds. And in that parable, uh, Jesus says that the enemy goes and he sows seeds and they turn out to be weeds. And and the interpretation of that is that these are children of the evil one. So we have the objectives of the enemy steal, kill, and destroy. That famous passage in Ephesians tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Even though the person who is trying to do these things to our children, trying to uh, lie to us, they're flesh and blood people, but the The spiritual forces behind that are what we are opposing, are what we are fighting against. So again, the enemy has its own objective. John 10.10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded and be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being, sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So even though the enemy does have its plans, his, his strategies, they, they will ultimately fail because God's plans are just so much greater. God's scale and, and the duration of his plans That's what we're going to talk about next in in the last three verses of the passage. Um, We're going to see and focus in on Moses specifically, how Moses was born. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he was educated, right? And these three verses uh, uh, summarize the first 40 years of Moses' life. And we'll see how Moses didn't get started until much later in life. And that's often how God's plans work. It's, it's, from our perspective, it's a lot of waiting and being patient and looking ahead. So we read the verses. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. And I I think this this story is amazing because um, we have the faith of Moses' mother to put him in that basket and, and put him in that river, not knowing exactly what's going to happen, but praying to God and trusting that God's going to protect this baby. And then we have God working in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter, knowing full well what this who this baby is. This is one of the Hebrews, she said, one of the Hebrew babies. And God moving it in her heart to, hey, I think I'm going to keep him. Knowing that Pharaoh, her dad, was the one that made that rule, that law, that these babies should be killed, that they should die. And I think it's amazing how God put all that together and got Moses in this situation. So Moses was born in Egypt, and I liken that to the fact that we are all born in this world. Believers and unbelievers start off in, in, in the same boat, in, in the same land. We're all in Egypt to start off with. However, when we become believers, we see that we are not. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. John seventeen sixteen. they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And how does that happen? Well, Jesus says that we must be born again. John 3, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then we see how Moses was adopted. And I liken this to, uh, the, the, and, and contrast this to the way that unbelievers are said to be of the devil. Jesus speaking to the Uh, unbelieving Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. And guess what? We we, we start off that way, but praise be to God, we, we, we are saved from that because we are adopted. Believers are said to be adopted by God. In Ephesians 1, verse 5, it says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then we see how Moses was educated. And to contrast uh, the believers and the unbelievers, believers are educated by what? This world. What the world says, that's what they fall in line with what the world does they want to do and that's what i'm I'm trying to you know with the youth really encourage them to to see that to see the difference between what the world is showing you and what god is showing you and that they're really two different paths and it's up to each one of us to decide which path we take so regarding unbelievers it says in ephesians 2 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were also by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So we see that the unbeliever dead in their sins, living according to the ways of the world, living according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's the enemy. And is disobedient to the commands of God, only caring about their own fleshly desires and their selfish thoughts. And these are under the wrath of God. Again, praise be to God that he saved us from that. Because, as believers, we are not educated by the world. We are educated by the Word of God, by Scripture. Second Timothy three says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know that you know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom and for salvation through through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's, that's my whole mentality when approaching our youth ministry and our children's ministry. We want them to be educated by scripture. We want them to know from infancy the sacred scriptures We want them to have that wisdom. We want them to be taught, to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be trained for righteousness by the word of God so that when they are men and women, they will be thoroughly equipped for the good works that God has prepared for them. Um, Quoting David Gusick, he has a different take on this this section about Moses, and he likens Moses to uh, a type of Christ, in pointing us to Jesus himself. He says this, At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. Moses was also like Jesus in that he was favored by God from birth and preserved in childhood. As well, he was pleasing to God without the temple or the customs of institutional religion. Moses was also mighty in works and deeds. Moses was like Jesus who would come after him in that he was wise Skillful with words and a man of mighty deeds. And that's the, the last part we see in verse 22 that uh, Moses is said to be powerful in his speech and actions. And I think that's kind of funny because uh, when, when Moses uh, comes up to God in the burning bush, right, minding his own business, you know, he's just a shepherd dude living in obscurity for about 40 years he sees the burning bush, and, oh, that's interesting. Let me go check that out. And it's God, and he tells him to do something. And what does Moses say? I can't. I can't do that. He's timid, and he he makes the excuse that he cannot speak well. And I think uh, as Stephen goes in the sermon and says, Moses actually was very powerful in his speech, even though he didn't think so. And I think uh, we as Christians can fall into that, like, I can't do that, God. do you you see who I am? I'm I'm weak. I I can't speak. I can't, I, I, I I don't know enough, of. but God empowers us. Right? Christians are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to speak and act. So we shouldn't dread that. We shouldn't dread God telling us to step out of that comfort zone and do something for him. Do those good works that he prepared beforehand. So going back to the question, um, uh, about being patient why is it important that we are being patient and that we are looking ahead we we live in 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 this body that is affected by time and we just see the things that are straight ahead of us and we have our our schedules and and our calendars on our phones and we uh and my wife does that she was like i don't even know what's happening day to day and i ask her what, what are we doing this weekend and and you know we're just kind of day to day but god sees the big picture. And uh, I think it's really cool what it says in Hebrews about Moses. It gives some more details that we don't see uh, reading the uh, Exodus accounts. Uh, By faith, Moses, when he had grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people. Suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of christ to be greater to be greater than the uh, greater wealth than the treasures of egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward so i think that's our perspective that's what we need to have in, in in our brains here right that the reward that god has for us is much greater than any temporary pleasures of sin and it's easy, right? It, it, sin is easy, and, and it, it is pleasurable, or else people wouldn't do it, right? But we have to, we have to think above that. Think God's thoughts. Think long term, far ahead, that even though this may be fun for a while, that's not the reward. Christ is the reward, right? That, this, uh, that being a reproach for the sake of Christ was, was greater wealth. We call that wealth, being a reproach. It's greater than all the treasures of Egypt, all the treasures in this world, everything in your bank account or in, in, in your storage or uh, whatever, whatever you consider treasure, Christ is a much greater wealth. We also see that eternal life is much greater than the suffering we may experience in this life. Eternal life far outweighs the temporal suffering we experience so going back to to moses and just kind of the timeline of moses right all the, these verses that we saw earlier in acts um that's the first 40 years of his life okay and then like i said before he's he's there uh just hanging out being a shepherd for about 40 years before the the burning bush and then he's uh he's an old, he's he's 80 in his 80s 80-ish when he goes back to egypt and he leads the people of god out from Egypt in the Exodus. And then it didn't stop there because he led them as they wandered in the, in the desert for 40 more years after that. So he's 120. He's 120 when, when he finally gets to the end. And, and, and that, that's when he dies. And he doesn't see the promised land. I mean, he sees it, but he doesn't enter the promised land. He doesn't get there. Yet, he worked diligently for God because he, like it says here, he was looking ahead. He was looking towards the reward that God had for him. And, and I think that's the perspective that we as Christians need to have. That this, this thing is not a short-term thing that we're doing. This, you know, living for God, building his kingdom. We've got to think long-term. We've got to invest in our... Next generation and the generation after that because that's what's going to build the kingdom. So I found this on the internet and I'm going to close with this. Um, and and it's, it's kind of funny but it, and it's kind of opposite of all the stuff I've been, but it, it was just hilarious. So uh, John Calvin was 27 when he published the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Jonathan Edwards was 17 when he graduated from seminary. Charles Spurgeon was 16 when he preached his first sermon. You're only 15 and then it says it's too late, give up. <laughs> and like I said, that's funny because that's that's like that's not true. That's not what that's not what this is all about, right? Moses was eighty when he led the Exodus and he was well into his hundreds when he's leading the people. And and this this is the mentality of, of so many, right? We wanna get uh, our church big and and famous and we wanna do it fast. That's not the way that's not God's method. God's method is, is slow and patient and looking ahead for the reward. So, so with that, the, the worship team will come back uh, up here to finish this off with one more song. And um, let's, let's go to God in, in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, I, I thank you that um, you have shown us in your word that, that you have a plan and you have a, a purpose for everything that happens in this life. And forgive us, Lord, for being impatient, for wanting our way and wanting it now. Lord, help us to be patient, to, to wait on you, Father God, to to understand that your ways are not our ways, that, that, that the way that you have... Uh, time set up for for things to happen uh is not according to uh what what we what we would like lord we we give you the praise father god because you uh you have everything set up for for your glory and for our good and we know lord that uh all we need to do is trust we need to obey we need to be uh faithful and patient in the meantime so let us um Take these examples from scripture of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Stephen himself, whose, whose uh, words we were studying today, that let that be motivation for us, Lord, that we're, we're looking ahead to the reward, Lord. We're not looking day, by, day to day because you're taking care of that, Lord. We're looking ahead and we're building your kingdom slowly but surely, Lord. And I thank you for that, that you use us and that we get to participate in your great work. In Jesus' name.